Our high school guidance counselor used to ask us what you would do if you had a million dollars. Didn't have to work. And then invariably, whatever you'd say, that was supposed to be your career. So if you wanted to fix old cars, then you're supposed to be an auto mechanic. So what did you say? I never had an answer. I guess that's why I'm working at Inatech. No, you're working at Inatech because that question is bull to begin with. If everyone listened to her, there'd be no janitors because no one would clean up if they had a million dollars. If I had a million dollars. If I had a million dollars. Talking about millions of dollars. What would you do if you had a million dollars? I'll tell you what I'd do, man. Two chicks at the same time, man. We're living in a material world and I am a material girl. Or boy. Well, what about you now? What would you do? Besides two chicks at the same time? Well, yeah. Nothing. Nothing, huh? I would relax. I would sit on my ass all day. I would do nothing. Well, you don't need a million dollars to do nothing, man. Take a look at my cousin. He's broke, don't do If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars. Lone Wolf Big Stacks and Jacks. I'm Tim Howie, Andrew on the board. SP Futures down two. ASA Futures down seven. After one of the oddest days, one of the oddest rotation days I think I've ever seen in the market yesterday, which was not all that indicative by the. In, uh, by the, if that's a word, of the averages, but uh, we will talk about that uh, more later in the show. We have uh, Professor Lou. How are you? Good morning, sir. How do you read me? I read you fine. A lot loud and clear. Over. Good. Five by five. Um, so the the big the big phrase here in Denver is Casa Bonita, uh, even bigger than the Nuggets. The uh, yeah, it's uh. What do you think? Or the uh, now? Have you ever been there? To where? The restaurant? No. Casa Bonita. No. Okay. So, so this actually got a story in the New York Times. Uh, it is, it is a local eatery that was part of a, a two or three restaurant chain established back in the late '60s, and it's in West. It's in West Denver, in kind of a sketchy neighborhood, in a strip mall. But it is. It is this giant pink building with this faux kind of Mexican tower look and it's specialized in serving how shall I characterize it sort of quasi Mexican food cafeteria style but the interior of the restaurant is a multi-layered open open core open central area diving well where it was all made out in this kind of tropical jungle uh, motif where you had people diving off the um, you know various ass parts of the restaurant into this diving well. There were gunfights with this guy called Black Bart and his gang that would break out. You know, with and they were so these these are actors. These aren't people in the restaurant jumping in the water. No, these are actors. Yeah. These are actors. Um, I'm sorry, I should have made that clear. We didn't have the patrons diving off into the diving well, although I think some people actually tried. Um, they used to they used to serve a they served like five or six things, and it was just it was just like the worst food in the world. <laughs> the sanitation conditions were always kind of kind of iffy. How can you screw up Mexican food? I mean, it, I mean, you, some you, was really good. Try, some try, try, <laughs> the. The uh, the gunfights would these these fake gunfights would break out. There'd be a guy walking around in a gorilla suit, just at random. Um, it was it was really kind of terrible food. God. <laughs> but the place it was one of these places that was so bad and so uh, 
you know, just so tacky and kind of kitschy that it became this landmark. And then the guys at South Park, when they when they wrote the series, they started writing in going to Casa Bonita because if you were a twelve year old boy, where you could get you know unlimited sopapillas and uh, you know giant plates of carbohydrates, this was this was your kind of place, and so. South Park started noting it, and and it it literally kept the restaurant, I think, in operation. But it folded during COVID because the sanitation, as I said, the sanitation there wasn't always the greatest anyway. You know, having to introduce all all this new stuff was was a problem. So the restaurant folded. So the the creators of South Park bought the restaurant for $3.1 million. So this is sort of quasi-prime real estate, a restaurant facility. They sank... 40 million bucks into the renovation. 40 million? So, yeah. According to this article in the Times, 40 million bucks into the into the restoration. That's a lot of tacos. Well, apparently they, they pretty much had to tear out the entire kitchen and, you know, fumigate it. God. And then steam clean it and then spray it with bleach. So, so it took a while to get it all up, but it's about to reopen. They've brought in a top-line uh, chef, uh, a legitimate Mexican food expert. They, they've upped the menu and everything else, but you're still going to go in there and and find guys jumping off these fake cliffs into the diving well. The the black Bart, the black Bart routine is going to actually have a narrative. So they they were scheduling. <clears throat> they had had talked about how they were going to open this place and. They said, well, you know, we're going to send an email out to our, our followers and just see who, who might be interested in showing up for an opening. They got 100,000 replies with people people willing to put a credit card down to to come in. And so the local police, people, local police force said, you are going to have to manage this somehow so we don't end up with, you know, thousands and thousands of people trying to get into a restaurant that seats maybe 300. Um, so they're 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 staggering their opening, um, mainly because they know that. I mean, it used to, there used to be a line to get into the place, notwithstanding its terrible reputation, um, <laughs> because because if you came to Denver or if you were a Denverite, you had to go to this place. And South Park South Park made it made it famous, but but they're opening now in this sort of staggered fashion. They're going to send out you know invitations on at random based on the email responses and then they will issue tickets for the next wave of the rollout and then they will start reservations and then they will for just for dinner and then it'll be a lunch and dinner I think it's five days a week or six days a week and then they'll go to a full seven day a week operation but I, I can't I'm trying to think if there's a place in Chicago like this. Probably not because you have so many good places to eat. But you know what? They've, um, they've put uh, it happens out in Orlando. I, I keep track of this a little bit because uh, one of uh, Audrey's best friends, she's not really been on the show yet, uh, she's in the, uh, whatever you want to call it, the booze business. She works for one of the distributors. So they're very aware when any of these places open. They pretty much know, uh, you know, stuff on the wine list and this and that and the booze and they stock the bar for these guys. And, and the amount of money that people pour into some of these places I mean, it's it's an odd world. I mean, if you if you happen to be, I don't know if I really wanted to be a restaurateur, but if you happen to be somebody with a, 
a good clientele in a good place, and you somehow, and if you own the building, and you made it through COVID, and you have you know you have a shtick, you have a nice bar, you're a steakhouse, you're something, whatever it is, uh, with the prices you can now charge, <coughs> I have to believe you're, you're riding you're riding the train to to avarice for God's sake. But the amount of money people put in these new places, like on, on the uh, what do they call it? The, and you have the big mall. What do you call the thing out front? The footprint or whatever. You, you, you essentially get a piece of the parking lot and put a huge restaurant up there. What's the name? Yes. For that? It's, is, is it called uh, the footprint? footprint? Footprint. I think is right. So, I mean, we're talking, you know, I don't know about forty mil, but but seven, eight, nine, uh, ten is not unusual. And some of them all got sort of a theme, and you either you either hit it or you don't. Someone in the in the West Loop here, they just talked about yesterday some mobile four or five star place. With some unreal chef just closed up like this week. So I mean, they're not all. I mean, the amount of investment that goes into these things, and if you don't get this crowd and they don't show up and they don't have the higher end wines and all that stuff, I mean, your nut in those places is spectacular. And it, yet, and I, with the interest rates going up, it's only going to get worse. So I mean, it's it, you know, it, it's funny. The, even though you never hear people really talk about basic business. It really is basic. Okay, what's what's my nut uh, per per day? All right, how many fannies can I get in the seat? What's the average tab? What's my cost on the average? I mean, this is not that difficult, but it seems like people they, they get rolling on this stuff. I don't know how these guys are going to make the forty million back. To be honest with you, I mean that's a hell of well, a lot of tacos. I, I don't I don't know I don't know either. Except that except that this was a prop. You know, these guys I assume are are quite well to do because of the South Park franchise. And, and what they've created, um, but but this this place, it it's just hard to imagine that this place would be an icon of kitsch here in in Denver. And and it when it closed during COVID, there was a hue and cry from from you know the, the population here, and and Denver you know Denver is not like Chicago in that it's got this huge core of people who are lifelong Denver residents. There are, you know, I think the most of the most of the city probably is still native here, but we've had a huge influx, a monster influx of transients in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And so these people don't have that kind of affiliation with, uh, you know, with, with sort of a traditional, you know, what was a traditional sort of landmark in the city. And and when the place closed, it was amazing how how many of the people in the city just sort of you know came together over this thing and said oh my god we gotta we gotta save this who who you know, is there an investment group out there that can buy it etc cetera, etc cetera. and then the the south park the south park guys who are our native coloradans came in said yeah you know we'll buy it they they had i don't think they had any idea what they were what they were buying into i don't think they would have any their investment advisors would have let them sink three million dollars into it or buy a building for three million dollars that's going to take 40 million to renovate but but the the point is that this is this huge cultural event here in denver because this terrible <laughs> restaurant is well but is it's not a, going to be but it's, it's not going to be reopening it's it's a it's an interesting story in a spectacular industry that has nothing but stories and and every single time you can see somebody who there a lot of the stuff i talk about you know, who knows if I ever get my point across, but is is really very basic. I mean, when you talk about all of a sudden you have to pay the help twelve dollars an hour instead of ten, 
if that would have been in your budget from the get-go, it's not like you don't think the person deserves 12 or 13 or 14 or whatever it is. It's you signed a lease based on some by, by having 15 people working there at $10 an hour, and now it's 12 So really, if, if you knew it was 12 when you did your budget, you'd have told the, the lessor, uh, hey, buddy, <laughs> you're too high. You know, so it's all about... I mean, these, these these numbers all come together, and I'm really surprised, uh, Lou, how little of that sort of training is in younger people. They they have no concept of what like cost accounting is or anything. I, I uh, the um, because otherwise, when you do this, you you should actually know everything that happens to you, what what it's going to do in the end. I mean, what's gonna, what it's going to cost you if, the, if it, something spits out here, something spits out there. If you have to pay people a little more, how can you do it? And it's, uh, I mean, the restaurant business is is very basic in that. Matter of fact, it's about Mexican. First re- Mexican restaurant I ever went to. This is, this is a weirder, even weirder story. A little, not weirder than this, because it don't matter. But uh, my then girlfriend, now still friend, and contributor to the show once in a while, Robin, buys this condo at kind of where, where I live now. She's at Kenmore and Dickens. Back when the place, the neighborhood was horrible. But all of a sudden, this is right back in the, you know, the yuppie, Whatever, whatever you want to call it, the encroachment on the city. Well, down the block, there's this Mexican supermercado. In the back, they got this little restaurant. And I'd never had Mexican food before. We go in there, there's a lady who, uh, I don't know if this is politically correct, but if she would have been two inches taller, she'd been a perfect sphere, you know, type of thing. And uh, so she's got this cart with all this, you know, there's a chicken in here and a beef in here. Food is spectacular. So you sit down, dinner's five fifty, and if you want booze, you walk into the grocery store and bought a six-pack of beer and set it on a table. So we go there for like six months, like once a week, and all of a sudden they get written up at the Tribune, this is the best bring-your-own-booze place in the city. All of a sudden, the next three weeks, the place is jammed. A month later, it's closed. (laughs) They must have have all been fighting amongst themselves about what are they going to do with all these people. The thing closes. So the Tribune killed them by telling telling the world how good they were. I still... But that's... I mean, that happens all the time you you get a restaurant and, and, and i mean i have a i have a kid who's uh who runs a couple of restaurants down in down in texas and and you know he he talks about you know the idea of being too successful and, and he said yeah you you want to try to hit the sweet spot of maintaining your your high quality the, th- the thing that got people there in the first place um but at, at the same time you know, pushing popularity as much as you can, and and he said it's a constant it's a constant balancing act between doing the things that are going to get lots of people in there, which you have to have to maintain the maintain the business, and getting too many people in because your your facility gets your facility gets swamped and you end up turning people away, and and he he talks about balancing that all the time and. The, the pressure to uh, to create new dishes, the pressure to create new promotions. Um, he, he the, the two facilities he's running are, are fairly high end down there, and so he's uh, you know he's working you know pretty much eighteen hour days. Oh yeah, between, it's a real tough between, business. Between, and, uh... between putting all this together, and I mean, it it, it but it's it's astounding, you know our our. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's genetic, but our association with food is so is so important. 
and and as a result our association with the places that serve good food you know is is crucial and that's, it becomes that's your what sec- you're seeing with the in the neighborhoods where you, where you walk in in neighborhoods it's like you're home away from them these little well i'd say the majority of them are owned by greek people but these little neighborhood like breakfast coffee shops Ooh, they're, they're home to people. The counter in the morning, if somebody doesn't show up, they're checking the house to see if they're dead. I mean, it's, I mean, it, people go out, it's, it's their place to go, and there's people they meet, have a cup of coffee, and then there's the lunch crowd, and there's a dinner crowd. But people can screw this up. In my neighborhood, and we'll shift subjects. You ever hear about, when you were here, did you ever go to Mitchell's, the one, on, the one right across from the train station? Well, there's a Mitchell's 2 right by me. And this place had huge lines for, bre- for breakfast and Saturday, Sunday. I mean, terrific, you know, where they give you the, the omelet on the on the big metal thing that's still hot and everything, you know. Anyway, delicious chow. And uh, never really developed a dinner crowd, but, boy, they, you know, breakfast and lunch was... All of a sudden, the, the guy who runs the strip mall ups their rent, and they say, screw you, and they, and they close. So my buddy Nick owns a triple. I said, Nick, what's the story with Mitchell's? He goes, this is 12 years ago, maybe? The guy goes, he raised their rent to, to 15 grand a month. He knew they were doing real well and said, here's the rent. And Mitchell told you, you know, stick it where the sun don't shine and left. So, so this is this is happening here in Denver in a place called Larimer Square, which is a uh, a walking area, not the 16th Street Mall, which is which is also a walking area, but Larimer Square, which was the original sort of walking area where they closed off a street and turned it turned these old warehouse buildings into into you know upscale dining and, and shopping, but mostly mostly upscale dining, and so the the. Yeah, this was financed by the city, but private and private investment came in. The city, the city helped promote it. Very successful area, and so the landlord, you know, post COVID, new landlord buys up all these properties, buys up the the area, and then promptly proceeds to start driving these restaurants out of there. It it it's amazing, and I mean, you know, pretty pretty good places, pretty good chains, plus some some specialty places, uh, one of uh, one of a kind. There was a a bar that was it was a it modeled a kind of a speakeasy concept you stepped in off the street and it was an old they had, they had renovated this old basement area and and turned it into this upscale speakeasy kind of place it was packed every every weekend you know starting you know Wednesday night it was the place to go down in that area they they used the old sort of old 1930s 1920s motif the the you know it, it was a it was an experience going in there it was really good the, the the drinks were were quite different esoteric and the landlord comes to the the owner of this this place and says well we're going to turn this into a boiler room so you're out of here a boiler room a boiler room i mean i mean it just which i think is complete uh, you know was was a lie uh yeah but but i'm trying to think of of the upside in in basically kicking out a highly successful business like this that by the way was a draw for a number of the other restaurants in the area because you'd go to that place first before you went to a you went to one of the restaurants and and I'm 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 just trying to understand the the logic of this I mean I mean Denver Denver is not Chicago with this huge population that's going to be storming restaurants every weekend but look it's, it's again I, I try and to the best I can, turn everything into somewhat of an economic lesson, and and we're, we're about to see one, maybe not this year, maybe not next year, in some of the the uh, these uh, athletic teams that are trading at these huge prices. At some place somewhere, 
when you see whatever this area is you're talking about, and the uh, say the guy says, "Boy, I'll, I'll this, I'm going to I'm going to pay forty million for these billions. Pick a number, say a hundred million for these buildings. That's a lot of buildings. Well, if the and they're paying X in leases, all right. So you say, all right, you know what? These interest rates are creeping up. I'm going to actually have to pay six percent on this hundred million. So what are we talking? We're talking six mil a year." All right, so the leases are now X, uh, and I, they're not they're not they're not covering the six. So I'm gonna have to raise everybody's lease by thirty percent, so I can cover my nut, without asking the people you're raising their rent. If I raise your rent to this much, am I putting you out of business? Because all of a sudden, if a guy's making ten grand a month in a restaurant for himself, and the guy raises the rent by ten. Well, that's interesting. I can work as hard as I can right now. It's totally for you and not me. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it, it, it all comes down to. But I think as, as a society, what the what the Fed has done, and I mean, I think they've made nothing but mistakes. But that's that's another story. But but one of the big things I think they've done, if they've 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 taken away people's ability to learn about the cost of capital and the opportunity cost of money. When I have people that I have a you know adult beverage with that are bright people. And I'll say something like, they'll say, well, yeah, well, the guy's paying $6 billion for the Washington, what are they now, Guardians or some crap? Uh, the Guardians. The Commodores? Oh, Commodore. Who, the Guardians or Cleveland? Yeah, the, well, <laughs> the Guardians or Cleveland. Guardians yeah, I, or Cleveland. I, it's I supposed can't. to be the Commanders, but I, I prefer to yeah. call them the Commodores. Well, and so, and I, and I go, and they say, well, he's got all that dough, it doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? If you could put, him in, put it in T-bills and get 5% on $60 million, okay, that's, that's $3 million a year. That you're you're foregoing, he doesn't care. He's got all that dough. They, don't don't assume because people have money they don't care. They have money because they do care. <laughs> Duh. I mean, I mean, there, there's an opportunity cost. This. Then you say to yourself, okay, is is uh, well, he paid six billion, all right? So the opportunity cost for him is going to be uh, <clears throat> three hundred million bucks at five percent. <clears throat> and is he that team is not going to make three hundred million dollars? I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. there's no way it's making that. But doesn't matter. But people get this idea because you go to the bank. You're so used to not getting paid for your capital that you've 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 taken it out of your mentality, which is really screwed up. Because you should always get paid for the money you lend somebody. I'm not talking about lending your buddy twenty bucks for a beer and he's going to buy tomorrow night. That's not what I'm talking about. But in general, I I, I don't get this whole thing why people don't demand. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the Fed has actually taken. But some of these people that, that plunk this cash down. And don't realize it. Uh, well, I mean, how much it's really worth. All of a sudden, these interest rates go up. There's people who don't even know how to do the calculations. I mean, it's crazy. SP futures down one, NASDAQ futures down three. Hey, Louis, get back. What's the story with this whistleblower and the UFOs here? Then you got to talk. We got to talk about this Ukrainian dam. <laughs> um, this guy. I want to talk about. I want to talk about live the live uh, PGA merger as, as yeah, yeah. Well, well yeah. If you know segue for what you just talked about. Oh God, we'll be right back. Stacks and Jacks. This self-directed trading is a lonely job. Online trading is not as easy as point and click. No, it's not. Everyone, even professionals, need to share ideas and think out loud every now and then. That's what I like about PTI Pro Direct. Their staff of former option floor traders really helps me choose the right strategy for trading option volatility and plan the time to gain for my covered writing program. Yep, nothing can replace years of trading experience to stop you from making that dumb trade and for saving a few bucks. We've all been there and done that. <laughs> yeah, I have access to all that great trading advice and experience for just a penny a share for 
stocks, $1 for equity options, and $1 minimum a trade. Our clients at PTI ProDirect can call when they need a little help on a trade or just to talk about the market in general. We trade every day. We love this stuff. That's what I like most about PTI ProDirect. Cheap prices along with great advice from real floor traders. It's the best of both worlds. Tell your friends. That's PTIProDirect.com. PTIProDirect.com. Are you one of the millions of people who suffer with pain? Do you wake up in the morning with stiffness in the lower back or neck? Why are you using medication to cover up the symptoms without treating the actual cause? Painkillers, muscle relaxants, and anti-inflammatories are not the answer. At ChiroMed, physicians are trained to detect the cause of your symptoms and to correct the underlying problem. If you're ready to listen to common sense and do what it takes to make changes in your body that can affect your health for the rest of your life, give ChiroMed a call and set up a complimentary consultation. They are located in Orland Park and can be reached at 708-403-2727. 20,000 patients over 22 years have been treated at ChiroMed and over 90% of them have had positive results without medication or expensive surgery. Isn't it time you did something good for your body too? Give ChiroMed a call, 708-403-2727. That's 708-403-2727. Let's get you pain-free and living again. Hi, I'm Audrey Johnson, an owner of HomeSource Realty and a frequent contributor to Stocks and Jocks. If you're nervous about the stock market and considering diversification or are looking for a rate of return way better than your banks, consider adding rental properties to your portfolio. Whether it's a condo, single family, or multi-unit building, I can help you select a property that meets your financial needs. Call or text me at 708-349-3456. That's 708-349-3456. Or visit my website at myhomesourcerealty.com. That's myhomesourcerealty.com. Stocks, jocks, stocks and jocks. Stocks and jocks. You are out of control. Here, right now, right here, right now, right now. Hello and welcome back to Stacks and Jacks. I'm Tom Allen, on the board. SP Futures down two, Nasdaq Futures down ten. Uh, for those who happen to be watching the market yesterday, one of the most amazing spins in. Uh, sectors I've ever seen. We've had the we had the Nasdaq was down one and a half percent. We had the transportation average of all places up almost two and a half percent. All the stocks that have been getting murdered in the electric auto industry, uh, the guys that make the chargers, the plugs, you name it, they were all to the moon. Banks actually rallied. Anything that was up was down. Uh, has been anything has been up was down. Everything has been down is up. I mean, I, I've never seen a day quite like that, and I've been around here a long time. Uh, Dow futures down 18 over in Europe. We've got the DAX up 43.3%. The FTSE down two, and uh, it's flat. CAC around up 25.4%. So slightly to the upside, but very very quiet. But, but we had huge rotation yesterday, so it wasn't quiet in the individual stocks at all. Uh, Nikkei down 272.8%, um, which was the first time they've been down in a while. They're still probably 25-year highs. Hang Seng up 47.2%. Shanghai up 15.5%. Uh, yesterday in the U.S., again, the Dow was up 91, S&P down 16, NASDAQ down 171. The, tra- and the weird part about transportation average, it really isn't an ETF that I know of, uh, of any magnitude for the transportation average. So it's not as easy as buying the queues. People actually have to buy all those stocks. It's, like I said, pretty unusual. Ten-year up three basis points, three, uh, 3.81. The Bund up two basis points, 2.45. Japan up two basis points, 0.44. And we've got oil. 54 cents, 7302, which is kind of a 
little bit of a recent high. Brent up 50 cents, 77.45 natural gas unchanged at 232. Arbob up 3 cents, 267 gold. Up a buck 90, 1960, kind of still stuck in this range. Silver up 27 cents, 23.90. It's over 1% move again. Violent within a range, but still in a range. Copper unchanged, 374. Crypto, Bitcoin down 61, still 26,425 is that SEC charges against uh, finance kind of cooled this market a little bit. Uh, dollar is down again today. Uh, the euro is back is back up over 107, 107.30, pretty strongly up over 107. And the pound is pushing 105 at 1.246. Andrew, what do you got for us, Trevi Weather Sports? All right, it is 6.36 here in Chicago. Going to start off with some sports last night with some uh, some baseball. We the Cubs play the Angels, and the Cubs lost, ending their game 6-2. And the White Sox were going to play the Yankees, but that was postponed to today due to some uh, some not good air from some fires in Canada. Uh, but we also, in, uh, over in Phoenix, had the Diamondbacks win over the Nationals. Now over to Chicago weather. It's currently 56 degrees today, sunny skies. Going to have a high of 72 today. And uh, no air warning right now, but we might have to look out a little bit for, uh, yeah, still some things in the air from that fire. Um, but over in Phoenix, they're at 72 degrees. Going to have a high of 95. And then it'll hit around 5 p.m. They're going to have clear skies today. Now, finally, for Chicago traffic. It uh, looks like, thankfully, still no uh, major accidents to report on the major expressways. Uh, some traffic are coming in on the inbound. That's everything from the Dan Ryan, Stevenson, to the Kennedy uh, construction. But other than that, kind of seems about business as usual. So that's all I got. Back to you, Chief. The, uh... Which, what do you want? What do you want to cover uh, first? Like we had pretty good debate on the show yesterday, and a debate again last night with my judges and attorney buddies. Uh, but my conclusion is, we were all debating about something we knew nothing about. I mean, I don't know that anybody knows whether all these guys are going to oh, get paid. So business business as usual, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, everybody's convinced that all these guys, you know, that Mickelson's going to get his two hundred million and be right back and joining the regular tour. My point was, I don't know about that. Maybe it was $200 million over a certain number of tournaments, and if he doesn't show for the tournament, because there are none, maybe he doesn't get I mean, I don't know is, is what I'm saying. I mean, do you know any more? I'm just reading here this morning that uh, nobody really seems to know the fine print on any of these guys' contracts they signed. Uh, well, the only one they know is about uh, Mickelson's because it became a court document in one of the lawsuits. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't know all of the details. What I, what I do know is that, um, you know, PGA was – was somehow looking at getting their heads handed to them. That somehow, I think, drove this on on their their antitrust. I think they both looked at this and said, "How much, how much money are, are we going to be paying lawyers on this? And what what's the end result that we're going to get?" They did a little economics, you know, assessment, and you know, I I, I think. At some point, the attorney sat down and said that the chance of our prevailing here is not going to be going to be worth the amount of money that you're going to have to spend to chase uh, to chase all this down, and and a recognition, you know, maybe from the or a, a, a maybe a, a olive branch extended from the players and in live to to the PGA saying, you know what, you guys are making the changes that we wanted now. And so, you know, we're willing we're willing to to play, and and you need us. I mean, the, the short answer was that the PGA needed the name recognition of these guys that were leaving, um, and and 
and that that's what that's what drove the settlement i i don't think they have a lot of the details worked out i think there are a lot of a lot of negotiations that are going to occur over the next you know four or five months as they try to they try to work through this as quickly as they can um the the larger question for me is is what role you know sports play in in validating or or our sense of validation of regimes like the saudis you know this this was much like the the olympics for china uh, and the soviet union um these sporting events are being used you know the term i think is sports washing but these events are being used to try to establish uh some kind of of international acceptance or public acceptance of the nature of the regimes that are that are sponsoring the games and, and i i mean i i thought it was a terrible mistake for the ioc to go into china and and, and uh what was it 2008 they did uh, two in a row they did they did the uh, yeah. winter in the summer uh, yeah i thought that was a terrible mistake and and who who knows what uh you know what was what was done behind the scenes i mean i don't i don't think any of us believe that the ioc is not incorrigibly corrupt uh, in this regard but but these these regimes I mean I'm sure the Saudis saw what happened with PRC with the People's Republic and said you know what we we can do this and we can do it with golf they're trying to do it with soccer you know they're 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 looking to buy you know big names to bring in there for uh, for soccer and 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 try to normalize their uh, their regimes that way well I read something interesting um, last night Lou and I, I when I was waiting for you to comment so glad you brought this up uh the two sides are, were accusing the other side of antitrust right and now they've decided it's all okay well the guy with this article said no it's not all okay it's not it's not your job to say that this this passes antitrust muster anti-competitive muster because if if the leave decides they're going to accuse the pga of being uh anti-competitive well, then combining the two, it doesn't exactly let you off the hook, does it? No, well, I, I think I think that's an interesting argument. I'm I don't I don't know. I don't know if you can bring an antitrust case in a situation where the product that's being offered is is something like like golf. I mean, I mean, it it, it this is this is the whole this is the whole NFL MLB. You know NHL uh, issue with collective bargaining. I mean, they they collectively bargained because they were hiring they were hiring people under under this umbrella of, of collusive activity. But but they got it they got it okayed because it was under the terms of a collective bargaining agreement where the union represented everybody. And, and you and you the, know my feelings on that. I do. The golfers. The, yeah, we're not going to start that again. The it's, like, it's like saying are, the, it's like saying. The people in jail form a union, so it's all okay in how you deal with the inmates. They're in jail. Yeah. It's not exactly an yeah. arms length in, inmates, in, inmates, inmates that are earning generational wealth. Okay, I've been, um, I'm, the 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 golfers are not employees, so they're not employed by the PGA. You know, the, or or, or um, live I, as I understand it. They they're operating in a different kind yeah, of situation. Yeah, that's. I'm not so sure about that. In order, in order to be a member of the PGA, you have to go through their school. You have to be affiliated. You're not, you're not getting paid. You're not, but you're not, but you're not an employee. I mean, but this is just this is this is like saying right. this is like saying I hire an electrician. The electrician's got to be certified by the state before he comes in. 
You know, it, yeah. I, I think I think you can I think you can make an argument for anti-competitive because in the sense that that the that as long as you're offering these professional these professional tournaments, if you act to block certain groups collusively so that there's no alternative, um, then then maybe you've got got an argument. Let me ask you. Well, let me ask you this, um, Professor. Uh, if you hire an electrician, he's not an employee, right? But General, you, well, right, he's a contractor. Okay, so but you can't say he can't do your house. Or the PGA reserves the right to tell people they can't play somewhere else. Well, that that's it. That's correct. And so, so the question, you know, then becomes: Is this is this a collusive organization yes. that's working to that's working to cut off competition? Well, if, when you if you go play in uh, the British Open, you need the approval of the PGA to go. Right. If you, the reason why back in, uh, they haven't had it for a while, and I don't know why, it was such a big thing on TV. The reason why the Skins game was on Thanksgiving weekend is because it was like the only weekend of the year there wasn't a PGA tournament. So they, Arnold Palmer and Nicholas and Freddie Couples and all these guys that were in there, they had a, they actually had a formal writing dispensation for the PGA to play in that thing. Now, you're right, it's, they're not an employee, but there's something. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, <clears throat> again, this is going to have to, this is going to have to, you know, pass muster. I, I just did a quick, quick look. I did not realize that the PGA was already under, was already under DOJ investigation. Or well, uh, I mean, they've been, they've I, been, they've been accusing each other. It's, it's like. Oh well, no, they, no, no. But this is a separate deal. So, so yeah. DOJ, DOJ is apparently probing them for anti-competitive practices. So, so the the question, I, I mean, this is going to be interesting. They're they're going to have to they're going to have to do some uh, some hoop dancing here because, um, you know, it, it they're going to affect it's going to affect not just not just U.S. competitors. It's going to affect the Europeans and the Europeans are yeah. How, how did how, how did they get to be part of this? Um, I, I I don't know except that they, you know, they all. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that. That live and PGA were slugging it out in court. The lawyers are reaching across to other golfing entities, saying, "Look, you know, we're picking winners and losers here, and you want to be you want to be on the winner." Um, I, I mean, it's 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 much like. Well, did the did like, the European tour? Did they have to give uh, Seve when he was alive, and who's the guy who's still playing now from over there? Uh, the guys that are from you, do they have to give those guys the okay of the Jan Rams to play here? They have the same sort of power as the PGA. I think it's bizarre about this. Lewis is, uh, you know, I got to give any crap to the attorneys, but if you and I each had like a street gang and we started suing each other over killing each people in each other's street gang and wanted civil lawsuits for it and threw up all this evidence that you and I actually shot some people, just because we settle our case doesn't mean that somebody's going to come after us for murder. Oh no, I, I I know, I you know look at this. I, there, I, I'm just I just did a quick just did a quick look at some uh, some opinions from a couple of law law firms that I uh, that I follow, and um, yeah, I mean I think I think there's there's going to be a legitimate legitimate issue on on how collusive this is and how much really obviously how much it regulates the market and and because. <laughs> 
I mean, because it's it's involving the European tour, doesn't this lock the market? This lock Which seems like it locks the whole plus. Tight. Do you really yeah. want the, the Saudis? On t- I mean, my guys last night were giddy. Well, the Saudis got all the money. They're going to be in charge. What's wrong with that? Well, A, they're Saudis, and B, it's, it's anti-competitive. Uh, duh, whatever. So, Lou, what yeah. about how much? You want to talk about Uf- UFOs? Uh, no. I need two more <laughs> question regarding the air. How much particular content in the air does there have to be, seeing as you're, you know, I don't say a former pilot, you probably could still fly. How much of that crap has to be in the air before before your 737 motors are in danger? Um, they, st- they stopped people flying in out of LaGuardia yesterday. Yeah, but I thought that was from visibility. Oh, okay, that's what I'm asking. Was it visibility yeah. or was it con- yeah, contaminating so the engine? Yeah, I thought that was from visibility. I mean, forest fire smoke is not the kind, I mean, I, I suppose it could get thick enough to damage a jet engine, but, but at those altitudes, that's not an issue. I mean, it's not like the volcanic ash, which, okay. which will tear up, you know, tear up engines because it's actual, it's actual rock. You know, being being uh, hoisted up. Uh, typically, forest fire smoke is is not a particulate issue on on engines. I mean, it, I guess I guess it could be again at some at some level of thickness. But the the big issue is is visibility. Okay, I thought it was. And, and in areas where you've got in areas where you've got a lot of you know what is called VFR traffic um, around around smaller uh, civil aviation airports that are near near big commercial ones, where you've got a lot of traditionally VFR traffic. This stuff is really dangerous, and and I I was looking at those pictures from New York yesterday. I mean, it looked like something out of Blade Runner. Um, well, driving into Chicago downtown, I drove up to the south side of truck issues, and my nephew drove me in, and uh, it looked like the '70s smog. We yeah. Had a clear day, and all of a sudden you go, wait, it looks it looks like there's a cloud downtown. I mean, it, it was it's pretty bad here. I mean, it's not you know not like you can't breathe, but. Well, it's not great. I saw I saw air quality air quality alerts are out for uh, almost all of Indiana and and extending all the way to the coast. So are we ever going? Is anybody ever getting any rain? It hasn't rained here in six weeks. Well, we're we're getting rain every day here, Tom. We're getting I, we're getting I, none. I, I mean, it, what's what's burning up there? Are these forests? Or are they wild? What yeah, are they? It's forest fires, and and they've got, you know, I, I mean, Canada has huge huge swaths of un basically uninhabited. You know, tundra forest area where this stuff can burn for can burn for weeks, and and getting in and out of there is is difficult and expensive, and and so you know the the general assessment is you know, these things used to burn for for months back in the back in the prehistoric days when there weren't firefighters running around. So just they'll let it burn. It's good for the it's good for the environment. It it clears out brush. We um, went to see a, 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 a well, he was a good friend. Uh, at the time, and uh, our one of our original huge clients had a place in the Bay of the Islands up in Lake Huron. And his son says to me, "You make a right, and you come down here into the Bay of the Islands, or you make a left, and it's nothing but you, moose, and mosquitoes all the way to Hudson Bay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's literally yeah, nothing that, there." That was um, so. So I, I think I told you I, I spent a, a significant portion of my younger life in Winnipeg. Okay. And um, you know Manitoba. Winnipeg is is a, a fairly good sized metropolitan area. I think the next largest city is Brandon, which is west of Winnipeg, which is maybe ten percent the size of Winnipeg. That's the next biggest city, and then you can go. I mean, we drove up to around Lake Winnipeg in that area, or Lake Winnipegosis, and you can go for you know hundreds of miles and not see more than you know thirty or forty people or thirty or forty inhabited areas. 
it it the vastness of the Canadian North, much like the vastness of the of the Russian taiga, is really something. One of the things that that I used to note when I was flying uh, missions over the pole was how how doggone dark it was over areas of of Russia or the Soviet Union or you know areas of northern Canada when you were flying at night you know if you you know you in the United States and in southern Canada when you fly at night you can see lights pretty much you know nonstop there were there were periods where you could be flying for you know 25 30 minutes you know at 500 miles an hour and and you you might see one or two lights you know, in, yeah, it's, in, the, uh, uh, in the evening. I mean, it, it's just, it's empty. And gentlemen, it'll be on last half hour today, John Flanagan. John's done some wacky stuff, but he got a, a there's actually a Canadian rail pass. So after, yeah. after college, mm-hmm. John gets a Canadian rail pass, and he wants to go everywhere. Well, <laughs> there's a train allegedly going up like the Hudson's Bay or someplace. He could tell us the story later, but something about he sits there and his freight train comes by, and he's got a ticket. And back then there was a caboose, and the guy goes, what are you doing here? He goes, I got a ticket on this train. The guy goes, well, I guess you're with me. <laughs> he rode the caboose with the guy. Because, it, I mean, there was no passenger car. He was the only passenger on the train. Unbelievable. It, crazy. Hey, uh, I, uh, we sent out, um, I sent out an article yesterday. There's, there's a whistleblower. You know what got me about this article, Lou, uh, about the whistleblower with the UFOs? Well, they're not UFOs anymore. They're what? They're, uh, what's, what's the new word for them? Um, I, I, there's I missed a, that one. Oh yeah, there's a new word. Uh, they're they're now a, a non-human origin something something. There's a new name for it. anyway. There's a dude here that is a whistleblower. That uh, he um, and he's talking about the whistleblower, 36 year old David Charles Grush, a decorated yes. former combat officer in Afghanistan. Blah blah blah. You represent oh, unidentified aerial, aerial phenomena, so they're UA, UAPs now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that covers that covers Chinese spy balloons and yeah. the aurora borealis and some other stuff. Okay. But he, he starts talking about how there there is all kinds of uh, they've see there's UFO legacy programs have long been concealed within multiple agencies nesting UAP activities in conventional secret SX program without appropriate reporting to various oversight authorities. I mean, go figure. Uh, he told Congress the existence of decades-long publicity, unknown Cold War for recovered and exploited physical material. A competition with near-peer adversaries over the years to identify UAP crashes, landings, and retrieve the material for exploitation, reverse engineering to garner asymmetrical national defense. In other words, he's he's not only accusing the government of uh, knowing that we've had some of these th- things crash here and whatever. I don't think he's talking about any people, but he says, materials from objects of non-human origin are in the possession of highly secret black programs. The classified locations, names, and other specific data were provided to the Inspector General and Intel Committee staff. In other words, they've been given this, this stuff to, to individual private companies to reverse engineer and actually so, get a huge... So let me... That, that's what, that would not surprise me if that was happening. But, I mean, if in fact we had this. But let me just ask you how... How long you think that would remain a secret? Since it's apparently been going on for decades, right? I think you know. I don't. I, that's my question to you, or or, or to Wayne Matson or something. But do you work for NSA? I, I mean, some stuff I, I think can remain. I mean, w- I mean, what's secret about it? I mean, 
people sort of have a view, they have an idea, but you have no specifics. That somebody walks out with a, a piece of metal. I mean, there, there was all kinds of stuff. If you listen, watch the History Channel, that that uh, one of the one of the big big heads up on something at Warner Brown. Werner Braun, Werner von Braun, was that his name? The reason why he got so advanced right away is, is there was a crash landing of something in Germany, and they found it. And he essentially reverse engineered a racket. So, I mean, I don't know if I believe that, but uh, it would not surprise me at all that if, if something landed here and it was a material that we never saw before, that they'd give uh, it to the right guy to try and figure out what it was, and by the way, he gets to use it. I, I can't. I mean, this guy. This guy claims that this has been going on for decades. That we found dead pilots in the wreckage. Oh yeah, I, mean, I don't know about that right. part. Well, I, I mean, okay. So at, at some point, I, 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 you know, I've been around the. I've been around fanatics before, on on some of my cases. Um, at some point, you you basically throw your hands up and say, okay, none of this makes sense. None of it makes sense. I mean, I, I, I'm willing to entertain the thought that some some alien race is willing to expend the tremendous amount of energy and and whatever to fly around here and and just you know look. But my perspective is that a, a civilization that's advanced enough to to do interstellar tra- interstellar travel, and that's what we're talking about, is is probably advanced enough to keep us from finding out about it number one uh n- number two to the extent that we would find something like this if one of their saucers crashed or whatever the idea that it would be kept secret for decades in some black government program i mean this is right out of what was well, the what, the, what the guys accusing July them of doing is there's was? there's multiple agencies for, i'm gonna i'm gonna say lou that if 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 somebody dropped like me in the Oval Office, sorry. But if I was somebody dropped me in the Oval Office tomorrow, I would find a way to disband the CIA and start over. What do you, you don't think that there's secrets in there for the last eighty years that that uh, that are never going to come out of there? No, but but this is not this is not some minor, you know, Kennedy person making a, a comment about about a bullet coming in from some different direction. This this is hard and fast physical evidence of of you know interplanetary or interstellar travel allegedly with materials that that are being exploited by private companies and the idea that this would be kept secret for decades by by not just the originators of this thing but the you know their successors just strikes me as crazy that, that that's the only way I can describe well, what do you, what do you make of uh, we only got a couple minutes but what do you make of that? I find it hard to believe that somebody's going to has the the capability of flying here from somewhere. Uh, you know, the closest place would be. I don't know how many years that would be. Uh, and oh, and some, Alpha Centauri is and, what four light years away. Yeah, and somehow you know you're going to get here and crash. But it would not surprise me if there was unmanned probes just being shot out by people from God knows when that, that would land someplace because the Earth is strong enough gravitationally to pull it in. Well, I mean, I mean, we might pick up stuff. I mean, uh, that that is certainly possible, but the the idea that we found dead pilots and, and yeah, I don't, I don't know if I buy that. You know, yeah, and, and that we're we're scattering this we're scattering this technology all over the place and and, and exploiting it. I, it just well, let's put it this way: if it was here, they'd find a way to get it to somebody to exploit it. Somebody would have his fingers on it. That oh, part absolutely, of it. no, no that that makes that makes perfect sense. If we had it. 
yes, this is exactly what I would expect would happen. The fact that we don't hear anybody talking about it just to me, just tells yeah. me, um, you know, I'm sorry. You, it makes for a good story. Hey, uh, real quick. It what, makes for an unbelievable story. Well, real quick, who, who blew up the dam and why? Um, I think the Russians blew it. I think the Russians blew it up, and they blew it up. They blew it up to uh, greatly complicate the Ukrainian food production situation. They blew it up to greatly complicate their ability to move across the Dnieper uh, in the south. Um, they blew it, blew it up to uh, basically cause the world to sit up and take notice if that reactor gets to the point where it's going to go critical. Um, it, it, it creates all kinds of havoc for uh, the Ukrainians and for the international community. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it makes it, I, I don't see the Ukrainians doing it. Let me put it that way. It makes more sense for the Russians to blow that up. Just like now, did they blow up to the extent where every sense. every drop of water is coming out of there, or they, or just some? I mean, did it, did it blow halfway down or all the way down? Um, I think it's going to drain. I think it's going to mostly drain the place. I don't think they know exactly how how much sediment's built up at the bottom, but I think it's mostly going to drain that that reservoir and Ugh. it's going to put that reactor at risk, and it's going to put hundreds of thousands of acres of irrigated farmland at risk right away. So, so that I mean, it it it. If you're the Russians and you know you're just interested in going scorched earth and saying, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll show you. Here it goes. We'll blow the we'll blow the dam. Um, much like you know, as I said, I think they have the incentives to do it. Much like I think it probably was the Ukrainians that blew that pipeline up. <laughs> you know, they were the ones that had the incentive to do that. Well, so it's a war. War is hell, and I you know this is getting it's getting worse and worse. I think, but. Uh, We'll talk more about that next week, buddy. Take care of yourself. SP Futures down five, uh, up 75 cents. NASDAQ Futures down six. Looks like a nothing day here so far. We'll be right back, Mr. Dan Janitas. How much confidence do you have that your investments will make you wealthy? Do you truly know the odds? Welcome to Luckbox, the control freak's guide to life, money, and probability. Luckbox shows you how to gauge the likelihood of success before you commit to an investment or any other decision. And Luckbox is free for one year at luckboxmagazine.com slash jocks. Each new issue dives deep into the current investing climate, separates the signal from the noise with relevant trade ideas, and equips you with cutting-edge tactics you don't already know. Luckbox is the essential magazine for proactive investors who are hell-bent on pursuing life, luxury, and happiness through sports, fitness, travel, food, spirits, music, and a whole lot more. Smart investors don't bet on possibilities, they play the probabilities. Luckbox is $7.99 on newsstands, but you can subscribe for 10 free digital issues at luckboxmagazine.com slash jocks. Don't rely on luck. Get Luckbox at luckboxmagazine.com slash jocks. Is your business being challenged by the complexities surrounding healthcare reform or other matters related to human resources management? If so, then Cognos HR can help. A longtime friend and contributor to the Stocks and Jocks radio program, Cognos HR provides its clients with a perfect blend of strategic consulting and day-to-day -day HR management to drive overall improvement in business performance. Companies that join the Cognos HR family are better able to manage healthcare costs, enhance benefit offerings, and improve employee satisfaction by leveraging our access to Fortune 500 benefits. Our innovative onboarding and payroll technology, along with our constant attention to detail, enables us to provide the highest level of quality service to our clients. Now, your time and energy can be focused on generating business and increasing your bottom line. We'll take care of the rest. 
For more information, call us at 630-401-8810 or search us on the web at CognosHR.com. Cognos HR, innovation and human resources. Licensed in Illinois and Arizona. Hello, this is Tom Howell, the Chief. Confused about investing these days? I suspect you are not alone. Investing was never easy, although at times it may have seemed so. I think one reason behind the current concern, although maybe not explained as such, is how the fluctuation in the American dollar and the associated politics is affecting your investments and your wealth. It may not be enough to make some money in your investments. You may need now to make enough to exceed the amount that your leadership is depreciating the value of the dollars you've worked your whole life to accumulate. That same leadership has seen fit to maneuver risk-free interest rates to near zero. Providing positive risk-averse returns in a zero-interest and declining real-wealth environment is by far the toughest assignment I've ever had in my years as a money manager. I'm sure that a lot of you have heard that one way to possibly deal with this problem is to invest in so-called hard currencies like silver and gold, the idea being that they will retain their relative value in the face of devaluation of paper currencies like the dollar. To be honest, I have never been a gold bug. I've always had faith that having enough dollars and a good investment strategy was good enough. Now I'm not so sure. But I do know that if I did invest in gold or silver, I'd want to do it in the same manner as we do with PTI for investments in the market, with defined risk. If you feel the need to invest in gold or silver, we can do it using the same strategies that we use for our protected index program. No matter what you invest in, we feel that you need to know and control your risk. Find us at PTISecurities.com. That's PTISecurities.com. Stocks, jocks, Stocks and jocks. Stocks and jocks. You are out of control. Right here, right now, right here, right now, right now. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly. Well, Stocks and Jacks. I'm Tom Andrew on the board. SP Futures up a buck, NASDAQ Futures down nine, and yesterday we had, uh, I'm going to say, well, I won't call it, I will, I, will, I will postulate that it was the, one of the greatest rotations I've seen, like, in one day, but we will ask, we'll ask Dan. Dan, how are you? What do you think? I'm, I'm great, and I totally agree. I think it, it was one of the better rotations, and it actually brought risk assets back into the picture, and is a nice um, support for risk assets. And when I talk about risk assets, that, that means small or micro cap uh, stocks and high yield bonds. What, um, it seems, it seemed, some of it, I, I, I guess, uh, I don't know if you listened yesterday, but Russell actually wrote a paper a month ago about how he thought over the course of the year, the, uh, the, the, the Russell would essentially start to catch up to the NASDAQ. And by the end of the year, it would be up. They would the, the gap would close. <laughs> it's closed more than he predicted in like two weeks. Yeah, it's, yeah, no, absolutely. There's a, there's. I think there's more confidence. I mean, part of it obviously is the resolution of the the debt ceiling issue. Part of it is also the the you know some of the numbers that are coming out. We are going to get the job numbers here soon. Um, but the numbers, you know, are kind of moving slowly in the right direction with everything. And also the, um, if you look at, uh, you know, next week we have um, the Fed meeting and, and the, the talk about a pause. Even just the talk about a pause is giving some, uh, or a skip as some call it, is giving some confidence or, or continuing to give confidence in the Fed's direction. So all of these things are very positive. I still don't see huge catalysts for growth, but I do think there's a lot of names that are undervalued. And on the other side, I don't see huge deterrence from these companies surviving. So although there's been talk about the highly leveraged companies maybe defaulting at some point, 
I don't think this is going to be a worst case scenario. I, I think we've already seen that the worst case scenario. I think there's going to be the the Fed seems to be smart in their direction, and companies are readjusting to the new price levels, and also um, even at the consumer household level. People are seeing, although they're paying more for, for their day-to-day -day things, and certainly services are still high, um, but I think the consumer is seeing some prices, say, come down at the grocery store, or some of the items that they buy on a regular basis come down a bit, and maybe the accessibility of things, in other, in other words, supply chain issues not being as bad, so if they order whatever on Amazon, it's coming a lot quicker today than it certainly did a year or two ago. So there's... I think there's some positive um, news. I still don't think we're going to be in this major growth market, but we did actually, the last few days, we did actually start adding some equities back into the picture, and um, I noticed that in two cases, uh, analysts had, had added um, buy recommendations this morning, so <laughs> I think we were right on the money on those. So there's, um, you know, there's just a better momentum and because we do our own trading, you know, in high yield and, and, and the small stocks, we get a better sense. I mean, that's one thing I've done since day one in the business 37 years ago. We, I learned to trade, and my mentor in the business said that you, there's a drumbeat that you become accustomed to from trading. And that drumbeat is really important to understand in order to know when to get in and when to get out. Um, I don't disagree with that. I just... I'm not sure, well, I seem to be getting more and more confused as this goes. Uh, and yesterday, even though I think we've had some segments in the market that weren't, even, they weren't just lagging, they're actually down while some areas are up 30%. I mean, so it's a, I mean, I still can't deal with the concentration that, you know, 84% of the <clears throat> entire yeah. NASDAQ is in seven stocks. Of the, of the, uh, but the transportation average, to make an over 2% move to the upside, and the same day, you had a huge rise in interest rates. That's sort of unusual. I don't know which one of those two groups is wrong. I mean, I don't know. I won't say wrong, but uh, it's 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 odd to me. I don't I don't see I don't see yeah, anywhere. No, I, I absolutely agree with you, and I think you're right on um, the mark. I think the the one thing we'll say is that this is definitely a stock pickers market, and has been for a while. Uh, if you want to, you know, I don't think it's the time to put your money in the ETFs or the indices like as a, you know, a long position because it's really going to be specific names within those indices that are going to shine and outperform. And you're absolutely right. Just to buy an index, it's going to give you a very concentrated pitch, you know, very concentrated um, position in, in those seven names. So I think looking at particular names, you mentioned last week 3M, and that was one of the stocks we bought, and it has a good tone to it now. And you, you were mentioning it because it had sold off so significantly over time. But it's those kind of names. HCA is another one, um, and you know I don't want to admit this, but even Amazon. And the reason I'm talking about these names is not necessarily long-term holes, but I do think there's some opportunity here in the near term. And I, you have to stay specific. Um, this is the environment where you have to stay specific. So don't rely on those ETFs like you could when the market was taken off. There are going to be some winners and some losers here, and the market is really differentiating. Well, I would. The only thing I would say about the 
ETFs, and you know, well, Dan and I have some of the same clients. Uh, if somebody really believes that the the, you know, the, the magnificent seven, according to Kramer, now are going to be the only place left in the world ten years from now, and there are people, you know, I'm not so sure that they're they seem to be above any kind of antitrust. They seem where they seem to they reach a point where they anybody who has any sort of uh, uh, inventiveness, they just buy the place seemingly without regard to any law. So, I mean, you could, you could make an argument. I think I could that, you know, you don't want to let go because those stocks have, it's going to be different this time. It's not going to be the Morgan Stanley Nifty 50 where people ran out of gas. These guys yes. don't seem like they are. I mean, I, I'm not saying, but my my point is if I have a client who feels that way, I I don't feel comfortable picking the, th- the three or four best out of the seven. So I'm going to say let's get in the queues where the seven probably are 60% of the queues. Well, it's Five of them were forty-five percent of the queue, so I got to believe the seven of them are close to sixty. I don't know exactly, say fifty-five, sixty, somewhere in there. I'd rather do that. Uh, plus, there's a chance the other ninety-three on the bottom might actually do something to catch up. You know, that's possible too. But I, I don't really feel. I mean, if I, it's one thing to say, uh, Dan, what do you think about the seven? It's quite another to say, Dan, pick me the best two out of the seven. I, I'm not so sure. I, you might feel comfortable doing that. I don't think I. I am. Yeah, but I think our, and I do, because our our whole thing, you know, our investment approach has always been to look at the companies, get to know them well, talk to the management, and I think our strategies are very complementary, but, but produce similar results in the sense that we're protecting the client, you know, we're really looking at keeping the, you know, preserving capital, and we're doing it in two different ways, um, but I think that that diversification, you know, having the two strategies is um, oh, I do too. Is how clients can can do very well but Dan how uh, I mean when you when you look at is is there no I mean right now it doesn't appear I mean obviously there's no sell in May and go away it doesn't appear everybody quote is is appearing to be very comfortable with the PEs and I'll even say when you talk about an Nvidia you know the, the revenue the revenue per share being you know 10 times I mean which to me is a huge danger sign Okay, but let's say that company's a one-off because all the future is theirs, right? But by and large, these, you know, your Microsofts, your Apple, they're up to, I refuse to believe that this new, this new thing for 3500 bucks, Apple not even available for seven months, is a driver of the stock. That thing looks to me like a clunker. But, I, but I, again, I'm not into virtual reality and stuff, but I'm not going to buy the stock based on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not either, I, and I agree with you on that. It's, it's, there's... Um I'm not uh, I'm not as big a fan on Apple as the average person because I still own an Android um, that that gives me everything and Google and Google uh, to me I, I like Google so the the um, uh, you know if you if you're a value guy you're going to buy an Android right and and um, so but I also agree with what you're trying to say is that there's and it's something that that neither of us and you know do is sort of following the trends or necessarily following the momentum and momentum there was a there was a study that was done on momentum stocks and uh, about you know a period of about 10 years which would have been maybe 15 years ago i remember looking carefully at that and realizing that momentum play, you know momentum investors growth investors who really focus on momentum at the time they only did well in one of 7 years well, if you're looking at a company, because, I mean, if you're looking at a manager, which we were at the time, that missed that one year that momentum did well, 
then there's really no reason to be in that category. It's not, you know, you're looking to make all your money in a short period of time. And it's the same way with a lot of investors today that are saying, okay, I like this new product, I like AI. And you just have to remember that that's okay in your personal account, but not in your long-term, you know, for your long-term IRA or the, your retirement money. You, you know, you wanna be really careful about stepping into something that has, you know, is gonna potentially have some um, thorns down the road and cost issues down the road. And also the technology hasn't been proven yet, so. Dan, it's um, a, the investors right now, and I, you know, I don't wanna dis- disparage some, but I, I talk, Dan, if you came out with a product tomorrow that was turtle eggs from Zimbabwe, and all of a sudden you said these things could be worth something, and all of a sudden there was a lot of option activity in the stack and some stack, and it started to go up, people would buy it. They wouldn't. Would, they don't care for a month from now what what the company even does. Does and you're you're exactly right on that, and I think that has been a trend in the in the industry. And my my thing has always been, I only buy companies I understand. If you if you don't really understand the products or the services that are offered by that company, don't get involved. And and our other thing, you know, we're on the institutional side, so our other thing is to make sure we meet with management because if you don't like the management team, um, it's not going to be a good long-term investment because you you are really partnering with management. So that that is a you know, but you're absolutely right. I think people will tell stories, and and I'm still to this day amazed at how many people will talk to me and not really totally understanding what I do and try to give me the rationale for for um, why they they think they're in this particular stock. So it's, um, or like you're saying, not necessarily having the rationale, but just jumping on board because of the fear of missing out. It's going up. How many how many people have you talked to? You were here last week. By the way, had a great time with Dan last week. It was, it was great. Um, how many people that are, that are up their eyeballs in artificial intelligence stock have any idea what it is? I, I have I do understand it, but I don't think it's the time to get in. I understand electric vehicles. I don't. By the way, they had a, they had a massive. Um, and it, I guess this the, where I really wanted to get the, the the crazy question to you is why some stuff. We'll go back to Trump being elected. He spent a lot of his campaign talking about basic industries, steel, and all the other stuff. Yeah. And if you'd have bought that stuff, and it, not, it didn't run up all that much before the election. If you'd have bought that stuff anywhere along the line, six months later, you were you were getting pantsed. Stuff all went straight, went straight down. Same way my my brother has a group of clients uh, that they uh, not you know he's not putting the thing together or whatever. But these guys wanted uh, not a whole bunch of them, but some guys said, "Look, we want we want to be involved in the electric car thing." You know, the sort of like the gold miners. We wanted the pick and shovels and the blue jeans thing. So they got together. Um, they, you know, they and anyway, there's a, they they all bought a lot of these smaller the people that do the plugins like plug, and the guys that make the uh, charging stations and the guys that make the batteries and that kind of stuff. Right. And they get That's they right. put this little you know group of stocks and now they're, they're not all in the same stocks, but they all kind of email back and forth. And uh, but the uh, they've been getting un- annihilated since Biden took office with this huge thing about nobody's gonna have a gas car ever again. You know, in my in my my world. Yet they've gone nothing but straight down. Yesterday they had huge rallies in that area. Now, who, who sent out that memo? <laughs> that all of a sudden I yesterday, think, well, yesterday yeah, was I the day. The reason, I, I agree, and I think the reason they had rallies is just that across the board, what we consider risk assets have done well. And I also agree with you on the um, 
to your point about the you know the the names um, and and we did at one point we owned a company called Ballard that that's um, that's one of their companies that they all those guys are involved in yeah exactly and there's blink on the you know on the um, chargers and and there was a period of time now that all makes sense you know intellectually you know it all makes sense in, in theory that those companies should do well but but you you really have to get to know the, the specific company oh sure sure to understand things like barriers to entry and other companies that could get in that maybe have you know deeper pockets um, you also have to know that the technology changes so rapidly so by the time you <clears throat> you're investing or understanding the technology you could already have a whole new technology that takes over so as long as you're on top of all that that's fine but I agree with you that the, all of that all of those um, stocks sold off for a period of time because there was so much uncertainty and even though we're seeing you know it the, the money is now coming in from that um, inflation reduction act companies are saying that they're seeing it and that they're benefiting from it <clears throat> but what hasn't come in has been um, this level of security from the invest from an investor's point of view, and that these are going to be long term, these companies are going to be long term winners. So even though you're in a product that makes a lot of sense, um, you have to know that that company is going to be able to produce. Right, and nobody, and nobody, one of the big guys is just going to grab them. Yes, absolutely. One of the companies that we've talked about that we like is Aztec, and they do, um, you know, they do a lot of the infrastructure building and the and the pavers and the and, and asphalt um, so they're in you know what you would think would be a good field but they got to a point during the supply chain issues where they just couldn't produce enough they had closed one of their plants and as a result there was a um, period of time when they you know yeah they have all the right ideas but they couldn't meet you know they didn't have um, enough capacity to meet the demand. So there are issues that happen with companies is what I'm trying right. to oh, say yeah. that they're that, that get in the way of your, you know, um, your 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 intellectual idea that this is gonna make sense or just what you say, oh this is common sense. It's a lot more than that. And the level of detail that we get into in analyzing these companies is what keeps us what what allows us to find the winners and stay away from the companies that are have more challenges. I just on a on a macro Basis for these, uh, I don't know how long the Fed. First of all, I don't. I, when you say, when you say the Fed seems to have it figured out, when did that happen? Yesterday. <laughs> well, I think the the fact that they're talking about a pause. I don't. I'm not saying they've necessarily figured it out. I'm just saying I think investors have a little more confidence in the Fed. They have really been on the um, hot seat in terms of doing, you know, having to do the right thing to regain confidence. And I think so far Powell has done a relatively good job. Um, it, you know, it, it, there hasn't been a lot of negative reaction, and there has, if anything, there's been a little more confidence. If the, you know, people have different opinions. I think if there's a pause, that's going to continue to give, <clears throat> continue to give investors more confidence. And the reason for that is just that the Fed is paying close attention. What, what, I'm not so sure that, what that means. That's their, that is that their job. They're, <laughs> that they're not wanting to go too far. Because now they're seeing, you know, some improvement in inflation. They're seeing some improvement in, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan, um, but at the same time, they are a necessary part of the process. So we have to, you know, interpret, you know, whether we're going to see much higher rates. I mean, the the short term of the curve, the short end of the curve is still yielding a lot. Um, 
we've been buying you yeah. know three month and you know anywhere between three month and six months for by the way when, when, when are the uh when are they starting again monday i'm sorry when are they starting again there wasn't a, there wasn't an auction for like three four weeks with the fed the, yeah the, they, they stopped that for a while but we're going to start seeing that again it, i don't know if it's monday but we're going to start seeing it again we buy mostly in the secondary market because that's where the you know that's where we're able to to choose the exact maturity or find the extra yield in fact you know in the secondary market you can find a you know you basically can find a bond that was issued every week and now you're right there will be a gap however some of those bonds yield 540 on the short end and then the bond in the next week is only yielding eight is 480 or 470 so in the secondary market if you have a choice and you have the ability to go in look for those ones on the short end that are going to give you the extra yield some of it has to do with the size of the issue but some of it frankly just has to do with the interest you know the level of interest there's a buyer that comes in and and sits on the on the t-bills that are that are you know and then they refinance them you know they they uh they step back in again um when those mature um we actually don't we we're a little more actively investing on the t-bill side so we can make a we can add a little more alpha to the process by moving around the curve and that's only because of my bond background um and understanding sort of you know movements in the yield curve and how to get those extra 10 15 20 30 40 basis points well we did uh we do more for like uh, a lot of individual people so it's 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 easier to go to the auction to not have any sort of a uh any kind of payment but you know it's uh it's interesting dan that you mentioned you know the, the when we talk about the fed and in our industry i mean we even though you and I try and, and, and differentiate the the market from the world around us, uh, I mean most of our clients. It's I mean uh, at least in our conversations. I mean I'm sure they do as people. In our conversations, really don't give a crap about the world around them. It's about the market and their investments, right? I mean uh, it's not like any of our people. Matter of fact, we love our our, our clients. So yeah, if you had a conversation with them, they'd be very concerned about. How the economy is affecting other people, but basically, there's there's two worlds here. I mean, there's people I know that will tell you the Fed is doing the exact right thing; they're keeping the market up. Uh, okay, <laughs> I mean it, that what what they're supposed to be doing kind of is uh, depending on your point of view as usual, right? I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, when when you say that they they uh, on February 2020, M2 was 15.4. Fifteen trillion four. Right. They ran that to twenty one seven in July of twenty twenty two. So we're talking a thirty three to thirty five percent increase in a period of roughly two years, which, from my training, means that since we had no growth, maybe we had negative growth. There's there's no way on earth you don't get even if you if if your velocity went down a little bit and so forth. We're all going into what that means. We're talking about a thirty five percent. Across yeah. the board increase, I mean, and now since then, since they've been been being whatever, they've gone from twenty one three down to uh, twenty twenty seven. So they're down. They're they were up, you know, six trillion, and now they're down, you know, sixty six tenths of a trillion. There's some something going down, but we're not. We're not making a stab at all of this, quote, price level. And what you mentioned earlier is, is kind of interesting, Dan, because you said people are getting used to this price level. 
but you're getting yep. you're, you're getting used to it at a different rate. I mean, some people have had some raises, and but I don't know yeah. really of too many people that have had. You would have needed a twelve percent raise, well, considering the taxes on it. Uh, I'm going to say you needed a fifteen percent re- raise for the last three years per year to break even, and I don't know anybody unless you were at the lower end of the scale where you're making 10 now you might be making 13 or something but you're down so low there it doesn't matter you're you're, you're only making another what 100 bucks a week you, you can you can piss that away in the in the grocery aisle right i'm saying oh, easily. Yeah. so i'm saying it, it, that yes people are getting used to their electric bill being 35 percent higher and they're cutting back on something you're used to it i mean if, if every day i walk down the street and you jumped out of a doorway and slapped me in the head. Uh, well, of course, after six months of it, I suppose I'd be used to it. I still wouldn't like it so much. <laughs> Interesting analogy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but no, I think some of it is the repricing. I have heard a lot of conversations um, and have been part of some of the conversations where people are talking about specific things they're cutting back. But... I'm all, you know, there's that side, and I 100% agree with you that you have to cut back on certain certain things. Just the average person, but even people who who have more means and, and who have seen pay increases, they're still having to cut back because there are certain services, for example, that that have increased. I just got a, a message from my cleaning uh, lady this morning that she was going to raise her rates. 50 percent that's five zero percent yeah yeah and i suddenly thought i hate vacuuming but you know what <clears throat> at some point and it, it i don't know whether it's done out of principle or it's done out of you know that could be a dinner uh, with some friends or it could be a a boat ride or it could you know it could be the gas for a boat boat, <clears throat> boat or some other activity so you have to kind of weigh it <clears throat> and there is a point where people will say no so there is a point where you know you do say no, and there are certain people, business, small business owners, large business owners, who are going to have to accept the fact that they can't keep raising prices because demand is going to shift, and we're in that process right now. I think of demand shifting when it comes down to the household level, and even at the you know at the at the corporate level. However, at the corporate level, there still seems to be demand for a lot of industries and products and. Um, well, some, well, some have, of it is the other thing, Tom, about maybe having a little more upside is we still have this sort of um, the global market um, coming back, if you will, because there's been a lot of fits and starts, for example, with China. But as global demand continues to pick up, and I think it will, that's going to be that's one more thing supporting the the market from. Well, know, why isn't? I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you. Uh, because I was talking to Russell about it yesterday, and Russell's kind of our—he's done a lot of consulting work over there. He's sort of our our China expert, and he's still a huge short on China. But I'm I'm kind of surprised with the amount of investment over there, and he's very concerned that a lot of the money that—well, put it this way, put a, a you know, be crazy about it, Dan. Two years ago, th- well, five years ago, before COVID, all you had to do was say. Uh, you know, Dan Janitas has got this business. China, China, China. God, he's going to China. It was, it's almost like the cloud or, or, or uh, yes. you know, I mean, if, if you were going to China or if you were doing something over there, your stock tripled. I mean, it wasn't tripled, but you know, everybody knows what I'm talking about. I mean, it's, but now all of a sudden the, the place is in, is in the bleep hole. I mean, there are debts. Anybody who's got China debts over there, and you've got people like Jamie Dimon running over telling other people to buy the stuff. Is he, do you want to buy it so he can sell it to you or what? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean who really wants, you know, China uh, – property debt at this point i mean i mean no. it, but, but somewhere along the line 
the, the, the magnitude of that. I have no idea how if, if it's a problem. All I know is it's got to be at least as much of a problem as it was a plus going up. Are, are we going to hit an auction where we expect these guys to roll over $100 billion and they say we need 30 and we're not rolling it over? I mean, I, so, I mean are, they, are they close to causing a problem? It seems like everybody's quiet on the subject other than a couple of people like BlackRock and other people telling you to buy their stuff that's over there. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I think when I made the comment earlier, I, uh, China is is part of that, but so is India, so is yeah. Europe, you know, so is Latin America, and those, some of those economies have been hit really bad, and they'll they kind of follow us. I don't know if the Chinese necessarily follow us, but I think a lot of other parts of the world do. Definitely Europe, definitely Latin America. So at some part, other parts of Asia f- tend to follow us, but but at some point they, there will be a um, you know some momentum or there'll be like a base of of um, effort. You know you'll start seeing that those countries start. You'll see an increase in demand from those from some of the non-U.S. Um, companies going forward. Well, I would sure hope so. I mean uh, that, would, that would help a lot. I, I just uh, absolutely yeah. You wonder about the magnitude anyway, Dan. Thank you very much, bud. I'd like to have you back here as soon as we can. It was great having you two hours in the studio last week. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. You were Good jousting. Guys, too. Would have been nice to have you this morning jousting with Lou about UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, SP uh-huh. Futures up two. Nasdaq Futures up 16. We're going north there, Dan. Be right back, Mr. John Flanagan. How much confidence do you have that your investments will make you wealthy? Do you truly know the odds? Welcome to Luckbox, the control freak's guide to life, money, and probability. Luckbox shows you how to factor in the likelihood of success before you commit to an investment or any other life decision. Your brain is smarter than your gut, and that's why you owe it to yourself to read Luckbox. We've made it easy because Luckbox is free for one year at luckboxmagazine.com jocks. Each new issue dives deep into the current investing climate, separates the signal from the noise with timely, actionable trading ideas ideas and equips you with savvy investing tactics you don't already know all while exploring how to live your best life through music spirits food sports travel fitness and a whole lot more luckbox is the essential magazine for proactive investors who are hell-bent on controlling their financial futures it's for overachievers and alpha types who don't buy into wall street's investment gurus it's for mavericks who believe in life luxury and the pursuit of happiness it's for you smart investors don't bet on possibilities they play the probabilities luckbox is 7.99 on newsstands, but you can subscribe for 10 free digital issues at luckboxmagazine.com slash jocks. Don't rely on luck. Get Luckbox at luckboxmagazine.com slash jocks. Hello, this is Tom Howard, the Chief. We've talked a lot on the show about risk and suitability, about how your portfolio should match your age, income, and risk appetite. It's been hard for investors to maintain that suitability in the last several years due to a Fed strategy that has driven interest rates to virtually zero. You may have even heard that the Fed was trying to drive conservative investors to a riskier portfolio on purpose, for whatever reason. I'm sure you're aware of investors that took some increased risk, such as longer-term fixed-income securities, and are now unhappy with that choice. At PTI, we've always stressed total portfolio risk awareness and tried to minimize chasing returns in a tough environment. Well, now it looks like maybe interest rates are moving more towards historical levels. Everyone needs to be aware of what that continued movement might do to your portfolio, both good and bad. We also have a stock market that seems to have stalled, at least for the short term. I think it's time for everyone to take a serious look at their goals, their risks, and their portfolios. Do they match? If not, we can help. We have a signature protected index program. We have ways to hedge against interest risk. We can make that portfolio right for you again. Go to PTISecurities.com or call us right now. The market can change very rapidly. That's PTISecurities.com. Hi, I'm Audrey Johnson, an owner of HomeSource Realty and a frequent contributor to Stocks and Jocks. If you're nervous about the stock market and considering diversification, 
or are looking for a rate of return way better than your banks, consider adding rental properties to your portfolio. Whether it's a condo, single family, or multi-unit building, I can help you select a property that meets your financial needs. Call or text me at 708-349-3456. That's 708-349-3456. Or visit my website at myhomesourcerealty.com. That's myhomesourcerealty.com. Stocks, jocks, and jocks, stocks and jocks. You are out of control. Here, right now, right here, right now, right now. Hello, Northeast Stocks and Jocks. I'm Tom Andrew on the board. SP futures up three, Nasdaq futures up nineteen. We looks like we're heading north again today. I don't know about too crazily, but it looks like we are heading north. At least right now, uh, Dow futures are down 30. It's probably a little late, but I don't see anything in the Dow futures that are uh, the Dow that is down here in terms of stocks that are trading pre-market. Nothing really up either, though. Everything's just a little, like I said, just a little bit to the upside. We've been flipping back and forth across the, the flat line here. Matter of fact, 10 minutes ago, spoos were down three, so we're we're you know just whipping around here. DAX up 32.2 percent, FTSE down 5.1 percent, CAC around up 23.3. So. Very muted, but slightly to the upside over in Europe, Asia. We got the Nikkei down 272, but they've been up every single day. That's 0.8%. Hang Seng up 47. It's actually quiet for those guys. Shanghai up 15. That's 0.5%. So again, a kind of a mixed bag over in Asia, which it seems like it'd be every day now. Uh, yesterday we had the uh, Dow is up 91, S&P is down 16, Nasdaq down 171. It's 1.3%. But we had the transportation average of all things was up like 2%. Banks were up, and all the uh, uh, people involved in the uh, electronic vehicle stuff were up finally for, on the day. It was really a very odd, odd and very turn, uh, flip-flop day. Ten-year uh, Treasury down one basis point, 3.77. The Bund unchanged 2.44. Japan up positive 2 to 0.44 as they stay between this 0.4 and really 0.45 range for quite a while now. Uh, oil up 53 cents. It's 0.7%, 73.06. Ran up 49 cents, 77.44. Natural gas up 3 cents, 2.36. Arbob up a penny, 2.65. We got gold, 5 bucks, 19.63. Still mired in this middle, middle between 1955 and 1975. Just really stuck in there. Silver up 31 cents, that's 1.3%. But still, no danger seeming of breaking out. They're 23.84. It'd be over 25, 24.75 for a breakout, and they show no signs of that. Copper and change 375. We got Bitcoin, which got clobbered the other day. Now it's just kind of holding steady up 12 points, uh, 26,498. And we have the US dollar uh, down today, 107.50. They're really down kind of heavier than the last time we talked about it. The euro is uh, down to, up to 107.5, and the pound is almost back to 125, 124.92. Andrew, what do, you, what do you got for us? Traffic, weather, sports. All right, it is uh, 7.38 here in Chicago. Uh, starting off with some sports, got some. Uh, baseball from last night. Uh, over in Phoenix, the Diamondbacks won over the Nationals, 6-2. to two. And here in Chicago, the Cubs lost to the Angels, uh, also 6-2. to two. Uh, There was supposed to be a game between the White Sox and the Yankees. However, that was postponed due to some bad air quality due to Canadian uh, wildfires. Over to Chicago weather, today's going to be 61 degrees, sunny skies. Going to have a high of 72 today, and that's going to hit around 3 p.m. And over in Phoenix, they're at 70 degrees, also sunny skies, and they're going to have a high of about 94, and that'll hit around 5 p.m. 
now finally for Chicago traffic. Uh, not too many changes from our first hour. Just expect some uh, heavier delays if you'll be uh, leaving the city this time, not just entering, as there's some heavy outbound traffic on the Eisenhower and, of course, always on the Kennedy. Uh, but other than that, everything seems to be about usual. So, that's all I got. Maybe nobody's coming to work because of the bad air quality. <laughs> I know I wouldn't want to. But you're here. <laughs> I made through it. <laughs> yes, you, made, you, 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 you drove through it. Your hand's in front of you, pulling the air, air apart. Yeah, Jan, how are you? Good, Tom. How about you? Doing all right. Whenever we talk about the air quality, I, as I was driving in yesterday and uh, on the south side, and the city looked like almost like it did in the 70s. You know, <laughs> what you could see it was like the smog. We don't really see that too much anymore. I mean, the air quality is a lot better, but I can remember uh, back when it would be like 90-some degrees, and I don't know what possessed me more than that I was. Uh, when I worked at Pullman, we were, part of, we were members of the Hammond Y, right? So if I couldn't catch a basketball or handball game, I'd, there's a park down the way, and I'd go run, you know, three, four, or five miles the, around the park. And uh, some of the days, with ozone alerts and everything, you almost needed like somebody in front of you to like part the part the air. It was like it was. He- and I get back to the to Y, and I'm in the shower, and I'm going, did I just help myself or kill myself <laughs> running this stuff? <laughs> I don't know if I was if I was gaining or losing. I mean, it was a. Uh, it was a. Uh, we used to have some really bad, and it really don't much anymore. I mean, anybody doesn't think the the Clean Air and Water Act hasn't helped some. I mean, it sure has. The uh, just saying. Uh, but well, you know, I I remember growing up on the southeast side of the city, not that far from the steel mills, and there were certain warnings where it was all everybody talked about. As soon as they woke up and got a whiff of what was going on in the air, you, you couldn't escape it, and it, you just kind of. It affected your kind of state of mind and what you thought about the whole time you're in this kind of spell, you know, cast by these, these odors. And I don't know what it was doing to people physically. I'm sure it wasn't helping their health, but it's one of the prices we paid, I guess, back then for having a vibrant economy that, you know, built a lot of buildings and gave a lot of people a lot of their dreams. But man, some of those mornings walking to school, I thought, God, I hope I make it. Well, the, uh, I have, uh, well, unfortunately, some bad history in the family regarding stuff like that in the sense that, uh, I mean, when you talk about people that worked in those factories and people who worked, you know, I had some family members work back of the yards or in the, in the, in the, in the stockyards, and uh, the incidence of, of cancer and things in those days some people or early heart disease or you name it, I mean, talk about records that nobody ever wants out there I mean I, people just weren't very healthy I mean plus they all smoked which made it worse uh, but I mean it, I mean, it, you start talking about companies that had this the reason why I say something like this well first of all I had family members that you know died in industrial accidents and stuff but I went to the Detroit uh, see the Detroit Stadium so I'm sitting there and uh, this lady was uh, had these two kids two twin boys they're like 19 got it one of them they were two really good-looking kids, and they were, they were like you know six three, six four, looked like athletes. Those were two twin boys. I'm like, God, you gotta be proud of these guys. She goes, you know, I really am. And I, went, so I start talking to her, and I said, you know, uh, where's the hubby? And well, he's dead. Okay, and uh, and she worked for a, um, I think she was in Flint or Jackson, one of the two. I think it was Jackson. There was a uh, made the uh, injectors for fuel injectors for, and it, they went. I'm not sure, Jim. How did Delphi become sort of independent, but sort of still owned by the 
the companies because they made they made injectors for pretty much everybody Ford and yeah, General. Yeah, there's, uh, there's other counterparts. Yeah. In the industry that were you know available to various car makers, but they were controlled by other groups you know, of car makers. So yeah, I'd have to research that a little bit. But, but she was uh, she said, well, you know, the, the factory closed down because somebody essentially got a hair up his behind that he could. Because the industries up like in Schenectady and those areas, they used to make locomotives and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they really became the rust belt horribly, even like worse than Cleveland in some places. Syracuse and Schenectady and those areas, they were all heavy manufacturing, right? And uh, right. so she said because there were so many people that were out of work there, they could get an average guy to work or lady to work for five hours less. So essentially that was the story, and they moved the plant. And uh, so she was one of the last people there. She had been on the cleaning staff but her job near the end was the catalog and part of you know all these little little you know little drill bits and everything and label them she said she you know they, they had to move like a, a million little pieces of stuff drills and screwdrivers and and uh so i'm immediately thinking at the end of the day this couldn't have been worth it you know because of course she said when we got there the, the population was so downtrodden that it took six months to be able to get enough people to pass a drug test to start working but then I said, well, so, okay, what, what happened to the hubby? She goes, well, he died of this rare form of brain cancer. And I go, really? And she says, yeah, there were like 12 other people in the plant had the same issue. And I'm thinking, you know, Jen, my immediate, my conspiratorial mind, I'm thinking, that's why they moved that plant. They wanted to get out of any kind of litigation on something like that. I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, it, hadn't, it probably had nothing to do with getting people cheaper up in Schenectady. Uh, but, I mean, you wonder how much of that happened, or had, and it maybe still is happening, but not quite the same level, not when you're the same level. Well, I'd recommend a documentary I caught on PBS about a year or so ago uh, called Exit Zero, you know, which is named after the exit as you come you know, towards the Skyway um, off of Wolf Lake, and when you enter Chicago, right around there, there's, it's, there's an exit sign, it's exit zero, you know, just sort of the baseline. But it refers to, the, you know, a whole, it's made by somebody who grew up in that area right along the state line, uh, whose family worked for Wisconsin Steel, and um, everybody in the neighborhood did, you know, jobs like that. And, you know, she tracks, you know, the stories of her neighbors and other neighbors, you know, all had these, you know, horrible cancers, you know, you know just you know, terrible sufferings. And, um, Nobody really had any doubt what it was from, but not, you know, there's nothing ever really done about it except eventually all the mills closed. And um, it's a, a very poignant and disturbing documentary, and worth seeing if you catch it, catch it on YouTube. We've, I've seen it on YouTube too, Exit Zero. Uh, but it, it pinpoints the problem you're talking about, and I think a lot of corporations knew, you know, when the excrement would hit the ventilating machine once the stuff came out. And, you know, they wanted to be out of business in that part of the world before anything this happened. They went someplace else with it. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we're, you know, we're offloading, offshoring a lot of that stuff. Um, plus, nobody seemed to even really care. I mean, uh, it's, I mean, some of the stuff that uh, the people at Pullman worked in, uh, in, the, in the paint department. Okay, I mean, I'm sure 50 years ago, you just, you just painted stuff. Okay, well then... When I was there, at least they had some sort of a, even though it was in the middle of the factory, you had the paint area. But this this was bizarre, John. They would have this thing, like almost like a waterfall next to where you were spraying paint. You know, I mean, we're talking about spraying paint on a railroad car, so it was a big, you know, it was a 100-foot-long 
uh, it was longer than a car, so it probably was a 95 foot long uh, thing where this waterfall would come out of the ceiling into the ground. I, mean, I don't know who designed that thing. But behind the waterfall was uh, essentially uh, almost like a DC-3 propeller motor that would, would drag the air through the waterfall. So all your little paint spatter and everything, instead of just hanging in the air for the rest of the plant to breathe, would be drawn through this water. Well, at the end of like two days, the, the bottom, you could shovel that out, and the gunk came out of the bottom of that trough. It was disgusting. I can only imagine that in the air. You know, and I'm not so sure this was the world's best cleaner, cleaner upper unit, but it was pretty effective. Um, but anyway, so John, what do you, what do you make of the... Uh, um, the market continuing to scoot up, and it looks to me like it's going to keep going. Uh, are we? Dan was talking about how people have become accustomed to the price levels, which means I mean, you and I and everybody on the show has been asking for a while: Is the Fed just going to stop inflation, which I thought they were going to do, and maybe to a certain extent have? Uh, or are they going to attack the new price level that they've, you know, essentially? Uh, given to people that people can't handle. And I, I never really thought they were going to attack the price level, which would mean, you know, we're talking about pulling money supply out by the trillions. And all of a sudden having some, I mean, certainly by any stretch of a, uh, the way they count stuff now, a serious recession. I mean, now I think you have a recession, but because you still have so much money in the system, you, you don't see it because uh, the nominally it's, you know, the, the money's still being spent. I don't... Uh, it appears that that's now they're going to do it in a way where they slightly come back on it, cut the inflation rate if they can, and uh, in which I think they're actually doing, and and the market will stay here, maybe even go up a little bit, and everybody, most everybody, will be happy. But it, I think John, what they're the part they're missing, and I don't know if anybody is going to write a paper on it or whatever. I almost wish I could have had the time. Is there's there's so so many pockets of concentration where the prices are up more than the average and they'll never come down. I mean, I don't see the, the, the latest electric bill coming down at all. I don't see uh, college tuition coming down. Although some schools maybe. Uh, some of the smaller liberal arts are having trouble. But I don't see cars coming down. I don't see I mean, the the price of food some areas are going to come down. The competitive areas are coming down. I don't see the processed food coming down. I mean, uh, it's going to be very uneven. Just like it I surely don't see anything having to do with hospitalization and med- medicine coming down. So, I mean, we're, no. and, and I, you know, I, the stuff that is really the lion's share of people's, I don't see rents coming down. So if you take rent, your your health insurance, your car, and your and your house out of the mess, okay, the price of pork can go from 250 to 150 and I guess I'm okay with it, but it's not, it's not cutting it, Jen. There's a difference, Tom, that, that I can't really explain as well as you and people in your you know, profession can probably. But I'm trying to, in my mind, to distinguish between bubbles and these you know, hard price increases or plateaus that, that don't fluctuate the same way as bubbles because they're not really bubbles at all. And you know, if, you, if you think of a bubble as being something that's largely irrational and explosive and it's designed eventually to burst. I mean, that's what, what makes it a bubble because n- nobody really believes it can continue to you know, ex- expand without there being some kind of catastrophe. Um, I used to think that there, were, there was a bubble in education and even maybe perhaps in medical costs. Um, I don't know if those are 
really what I would consider bubbles anymore because I don't know what it's going to take for those things to finally burst. But there's other, you know, rises in people's expenses that are are just here to stay, like you mentioned. I think, um, you know, automobiles, you know, electric or non-electric, are going to be pretty much out of sight for the average, you know, person who lives, you know, every other paycheck to every other paycheck, maybe, and has some savings. This is just not, you know, a realistic goal for them. Nobody can nobody can sign up, can save up in two years, fifty grand to write a check for a new car. No, and, and then you know, but then there's other things too that, that make me you know worry about bubbles that you know, you know, there's always been the risk of a housing bubble. We see those throughout our lives, and I think we're we're still in one of those because I don't think we've, you know, I don't think anybody really wants to consider how bad it would be if real estate prices or values were to collapse, and I think we have to always kind of think that, that that's something that is not wired in the same way maybe the automobiles are or medical care or education expenses that there's a demand that is very you know persuasive in determining the price for a piece of real estate whether it's commercial or residential and once once that you know appetite is not there to pay for this piece of property at any price let alone the one that's being asked for it you've got real trouble i i think you know what, what we're seeing now in california for example, with you know an unwillingness of you know insurance companies to make you know policies, write policies on residential property, just because of the the losses that they're exposed to having business in that state, um, I, I think that that's going to have a, a, a tremendous impact in reducing you know housing values in an already distressed market, you know, residential and commercial. Um, those kind of things that you don't really think of as being part of the problem, I think you're probably going to rise to the surface and you know, make themselves much more apparent. Um, sort of ancillary things. To, you know, well, General, a lot, of, uh, a lot of what you're saying, if you, if you go back and read, <laughs> talk about something from back how many hundred years ago, if you go back and read regarding the, the tulip mania, and just, just to be very basic on learning what bubbles and things were, uh, I went back and I spent quite a bit of time reading up on the tulip media. I mean, as much as you can read about it, there's a couple of books on it. And uh, if if everybody just buys stuff, and you end up and prices just get too high, people just you know they, they stop buying it. Okay, there's no there's no cause for a bubble to necessarily burst, right? People just stop buying it. Like classic cars. I mean, most of the people who buy classic cars. I think have a lot of dough. And if all of a sudden the price gets to you know 100 grand for a 57 Chevy, most guys are going to say, well, you know, I'm not going to do more than 100 grand. But but there's no real reason for the the price of the 57 Chevys to collapse back down to 20, right? But right, it's an irrational thing. It has nothing to do with. But there's no there's no impetus. Like as much as I might think the market here, in my mind, some areas are the the PE ratios are are way excessive. Uh, but there's no. That doesn't mean today all of a sudden, you know, this chief guy thinks, uh, you know, the price of these 10 stocks might be a little high. We're going to go sell them. Oh, no, no nobody's going to do that. And it, I'm not going to do that. I mean, <laughs> you know, and uh, certainly not with other people's money. I mean, but the, the, my, my point is, is that all of a sudden the, it, it doesn't stop there. You know, the tulips all of a sudden were listed on the exchanges in Holland at the time, whatever kind of exchanges they had. And then, of course, somebody found a way to borrow money to buy the tulips. 
So now you start putting this leverage on the line. Okay, and then even then, probably something had to happen one day where uh, the price went down some and all of a sudden somebody gets a margin call or whatever they they were at the time, and all of a sudden this thing collapses down to God knows what. And then you look at the what's the real value of the tulip, and the value is, well, it's a flower. Okay, right? It's one flower better than Bitcoin. Let's put it that way. Uh, But, I mean, the same thing happens to housing. I mean, right now, I'm going to say, Nancy was on Monday. She didn't really give a percentage, but I'm going to say 65 to 70% of the people who bought their homes in the last four years probably could not, have, could not qualify for a mortgage now at the new rate. However, if, if you and Mrs. Flanagan and the two little Flanagans hang in there and the two of you get along and, and you don't get divorced and need a new mortgage and you, neither one of you gets transferred, and uh, nothing goes bad where you, you have like three other little Flanagans and have to need a bigger house. If you don't have to move out of there, you're probably okay. So, even though you, because now the new, new leverage you can't afford. <clears throat> or, you know, whatever it is, somebody on spec houses or something, as long as they can raise the rent, they can keep covering the mortgage, even if it might be an adjustable. But all that has to happen is some sort of a, a, a real recession where, you know, 10% of the people get laid off and they all have to move. Now all of a sudden you're going to see these housing prices totally collapse. And, and someday, somewhere, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you, even though I was there, what caused the, in March of 2001 the, the dot-bomb stuff to collapse. And why did Cisco go from 65 to 6? And I, I can't tell you what, what the day was. Well, I wish I could tell you what was the day where all of a sudden things got caught and everybody looked around the, around the room for the buyer and they saw another seller and where's the buyer and there wasn't one and all of a sudden... You get a margin call and you're selling we don't want to, and all of a sudden the thing goes flying down and everybody's broke. You know, it's, but whenever you see sort of an imbalance, and I'm seeing the same sort of thing now I saw in 2007 on the property values in, in terms of in relation to people's income. And, and now the interest rate's going up as well. But that doesn't mean that I'm hoping for that to happen, John. It doesn't mean that I think it will happen because I think there has to be some sort of a catalyst, and I honestly don't see one. Um, that doesn't mean there isn't one, right? Right. But it's it's always a case, you know, we, you got to look at what other kind of interest there is. Like, I mean, the, the, the tulip phenomenon was, for its day, a kind of global phenomenon. Oh, sure. In, in, a, in the same way that the South Sea bubble in the 18th century in England was a, a global phenomenon. Even the Florida real estate boom in the 20s in this country had investors from lots of different places um, who are trying to, you know, cash in and get rich quick. Jan, if it's going up, I want in. Right, and then you, you're, you know, you're considered stupid or, or greedy if you don't get on this bandwagon. There's there's that kind of emotional drive that when you just are detached from reality about you know, what can really happen here. So that there's always, you know, that, that kind of fear. But in the past, you know, you had the Japanese throwing money into real estate in this country, driving up the prices in big cities. Then it was the Chinese, you know. All, you know, I think those days are over. I just don't see a big infusion of, of cash or any interest in putting in cash in big amounts from anybody in the world right now because all of these markets are now in trouble. I think they've all been overbuilt. I think you know the COVID mess was a wake-up call you know, to see just how much damage can be done by having stupid people, you know, making policy about how to live life in a big city, whether a big city really. Can be called a big city if you just make mandates. Nobody should be working for the next two years. Nobody should be going to school or anything else. I mean, this kind of craziness has put us, you know, behind the eight ball now. We have 
damaged, I think, seriously, the way the market is supposed to work. And we've interjected things in it that really have no place in, in these decisions, but we're going to have to live with it. Well, you're, you're in a climate where you don't have all this money coming in. I just think that there's there's no possibility for a big bailout in the event that things well, go south. What's the possibility? What's the possibility of a catch-up? I mean, right now, if you look at what, I, what I'm saying, if you look at, let's say, the median price of a home is 406. It's roughly there, 420, 400, somewhere in there. And the, the, the median family income, and I'm going to be generous here, I'm going to say it's 75. And that's, that's high. I think it's more like 60. Well, I got news for you. I mean, I'm not giving you news. A family making 75 cannot afford a house at 406. No. I mean, that's not happening. Or, or, or a car. Well, I'm saying that's it's, it's even if you can walk to work in our school. Right. But I'm saying you're 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 not getting there. So okay, so what has to happen now? Maybe the people got in when it was cheaper. Now they own the home. Uh, what has to happen? Well, we would hope that three years from now, the price of the home median home is four ten, and the median income is eighty five or ninety. You know that we make some progress in that regard. And five years from now. The price of the home is four twelve, and by the way, the median family is a hundred. That we gain on it that way. That that would be the hope of everybody, yes. right? And now, right. I mean, and I guess that could happen. And maybe you know, I maybe it could happen. You know, over ten years from now, the average family is making a buck and a half, and the price of the home is still four oh six. And guess what? They seem cheap. I mean, that, that's what we would like to see happen, right? I, yeah, I, I unfortunately, get, I think people are going to at some point have to start asking themselves, "What the heck are we working for?" Well, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I can't I, afford a house and yeah. a car and education for our kids. And stuff. What's what's the point of having a job? Let's all just commit mass suicide. Well, that's when people say, "Why doesn't somebody go to a job at at thirteen bucks an hour, thirteen fifty? When when uh, what what I at ten bucks an hour? I did a calculation. We got to go here, Jeff. But I did a calculation. I should do it again." If somebody gave you the five grand to buy a car, of course you can't even find something that runs now for five grand. But if somebody gave you the five grand for the car, and paid for your insurance and your gas, your first sixty-six hours of work went to pay for your city sticker, your license plate, your title transfer, and a tax on the car. But it, that's a lot. Yep, yep, that's an awful lot. <laughs> it's an awful lot. Uh, not to mention, if you got to pay tolls over the Skyway, where to get off the word at exit zero, as you're talking about, the tolls are six eight. Oh yeah, if you want to park it, uh, uh, John. Thank you very much. S and P futures up two twenty five. Nasdaq futures up thirty five. Trying to come back from yesterday's uh, collapse, kind of in the, in the Nasdaq, even though they're up so high. We'll see if this this flip continues. We'll talk about it tomorrow on Stocks and Jacks. Stocks and Jocks is brought to you by PTI Securities and Futures. Go to PTISecurities.com. PTI ProDirect. Trade for as low as a penny per share and a dollar per option contract. Learn more at PTIProDirect.com. Nadex. Offering an intuitive way to trade the financial markets. Visit Nadex.com. HomeSource Realty. Call Audrey Johnson at 708-349-3456. Hamzi Analytics. Listen to Fari Hamzi every other Thursday and visit hamzianalytics.com. Cairo Med. Back or neck pain? Schedule a complimentary consultation by calling 708-403-2727. DAX Research. Tune in for David Andelman's technical analysis on Mondays and Thursdays and call 1-800-821-4968.